Jonah chapter 2. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed over me upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, let's see. The last time we saw Jonah, where was he? In the belly of the fish. That's where chapter 1 left Jonah. It says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Let's review briefly, if you weren't here, how Jonah got to be in the belly of a fish. He was a prophet in Israel. God called him to go to the Ninevites. The Ninevites, the enemies of the people of Israel, but he decided instead of going up, he decided he was going to go down. And he took three steps down, do you remember? He went down to Joppa, he went down to the ship, and then he went down to the belly of the ship, and then God threw something at the ship. He threw a storm at the ship, and then they went and said, Jonah, get up. He got up, and they found out that Jonah was the problem all this time. And so the pagan sailors said, what should we do? And Jonah said, well, the only way to get out of this is to throw me into the sea. But they didn't want to do that. They were having more regard for Jonah's life than he was having for theirs. But they were not able to get back to land, even though they had thrown the cargo off. And so what did they end up doing? They threw Jonah into the water. And that's how he got into the sea. And the last line says, and God appointed. It's the the first of four times in this little letter, this little book, where we find that God appointed. The first thing he appointed was this fish to swallow Jonah. Now, the capital advantage of spending three nights and three days in the belly of a fish is that you have time to think about things. And Jonah did. He had time to reflect upon his life. As you might imagine, he had time to reflect upon how in the world he got to be inside a great fish without any idea of how or when he might get out. And actually, as we will see, without any hope of really getting out at some point. And what else would you imagine that you would do if you were in the belly of a fish? In addition to reflecting, what else would you do? You would pray. That's what I would do as well. And I think most people, believers or not, would find themselves calling out uh, and asking for help. And that's exactly what Jonah did. And that's what we have in chapter 2. 
And this is something of an interruption to the, the, the narrative flow of this book of Jonah. However, it is key, this, this prayer that we have of Jonah, it's key to understanding the, the flow and the message of the book of Jonah. But we find here, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, in the belly of the fish. Now, this is a hymn of thanksgiving. And we, had, uh, we did in the summer a few of the, the psalms. And uh, I don't recall if we did a psalm of thanksgiving or not, but this is a very typical psalm or song or poem of thanksgiving. And it follows the, the typical Hebrew pattern of a thanksgiving song. And it has five sections. It has the introduction. It has the description of the past troubles. The, how did I get in this, in this in the first place? Then it has God's rescue from those troubles. And then it has appeal to God for help. And then finally it has the commitment to God, the vow to the Lord. And then that, that's how this one flows as well. And in verse 2 we have the introduction. And this is the reason why he was giving thanks. The reason why he was giving thanks was he called out to the Lord. Do you remember that was one of the verbs that we says is repeated many times in this book? Called? Well, he called out to the Lord out of his distress, and he answered me. Why are you giving thanks, Jonah? Well, the reason he says, this is why I'm writing this poem. This is why I'm giving thanks. I called to the Lord, and what did he do? He answered me. As is typical of Hebrew poetry, he repeated the same idea with other words. First he says, I called out to the Lord, out of my distress, he answered me. And then he repeats, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. Now this word, Sheol, not an English word. Uh, it's a Hebrew word, but I, I suppose that the translators leave it in there because it's a little hard to translate. Uh, it's something of a proper noun as well, and so it's in capital letters. It's not quite hell, it's not that specific, but in the Old Testament there is this, this nether world, there is this world of the dead, and that is Sheol. We could translate it death, but we might want to capitalize the D, personalizing this sort of, or making it a, a concrete noun. Out of the belly of, of death I cried, and you heard my voice. Do you remember I said that one of the techniques that the author of this, uh, this book uses is irony? Uh, and here's some irony. You may recall that when uh, Jonah was sleeping down in the hull of the ship, the captain of the ship came to him and he said, Arise, call out to your God. And uh, here we find Jonah doing what? Calling out to his God. Uh, the, the captain of the ship, this pagan captain of the ship, was right on. And now Jonah is obeying what the pagan captain had earlier told him to do. But we need to understand that Jonah thought he was a dead man. He wasn't using this Sheol word poetically. He thought he was gone. And of course he did. He had just been hurled into the sea in a raging storm that was terrifying these experienced mariners. He thought he was a dead man. And then in the next verses, he describes his his brush with death. Verses 3 to the beginning of 6. And here he uses... Deep water imagery. You'll find other psalms do this as well. And we use this as, as well, don't we? We talk about, you know, I felt like I was drowning. We use it figuratively, poetically. We, we say, oh, the, uh, if we, people who get in debt, they say, oh, I'm, I'm up to my ears or I'm up to my chin in debt. Uh, we feel like we're, we're going under. We use that sort of imagery. And, of course, we understand 
what that means if we've grown up at the beach or lived at the beach. We know what it is to be tossed by the waves and, and disoriented and not knowing which way's up and which way's down, but it's more appropriate even. You might look at, for example, Psalm 42, Psalm 69, Psalm 88. uses this figuratively, figuratively, but Jonah's using it more than figuratively, isn't he? It's very appropriate for him. He literally was in the waves. It was literally accurate. And I want you to look at verse 3. It says, For you cast me into the deep. Do you remember, those of you who were here last week, chapter, chapter 1, there were four times that things were hurled. Uh, God hurled a storm at the ship, and then uh, Jonah said, hurl me into the sea, uh, and they hurled the cargo over, and then they finally hurled him into the sea. This is a different word, but it's the same idea. Who was it that really cast Jonah into the sea, according to Jonah? It was God. And so, even though these soldiers or sailors had carried this out, Jonah's recognizing that this was not their doing. This was not an accident. This was what God did. It said, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves, your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Now, let's look at this verse 4 for just a sec here. Because uh, he says here, I was driven away from your sight. Literally this is, I was driven away from before your eyes. Now, those of you here last week, what was he trying to do? What was his stated purpose last week? It was to flee from before the presence of the Lord. That's the expression that's used in chapter 1. He wanted to flee from before the presence of the Lord. And now he says... I am driven away from before your eyes. A very, very similar expression. So in other words, he got exactly what he wanted. This is what he was looking for, wasn't it? He was trying to get away from the presence of the Lord, and God granted his request. He, he, he cast him over and he said, Okay, I was driven away from the presence of the Lord. And also, um, look at... The beginning of verse 6, it says at the root of the mountains, I went down. I went down. Do you remember in chapter 1 we saw what? Three times he went down. He went down to Joppa. He went down to the ship. He went down to the bottom of the ship. And now he says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. So this is the fourth time he went down. And there may be a lesson here about our inability to stop a downward movement. You see, he didn't want to get that far down, did he? He wasn't trying to get down to the bottom of the sea, was he? He wasn't trying to get down to the roots of the mountains. He was only trying to go down a little bit in his fleeing from the presence of the Lord. He wasn't trying to get that far away. But you see, once he started down this this slope, he found that it was a slippery slope Indeed. And so, there may well be a warning here about our, our little rebellions, about our, our little fleeings from the presence of the Lord. We don't want to get too far away, but, but maybe not so close after all. But there may be a warning here about, be careful. The slope gets steeper and steeper, and it gets more and more slippery. And we can't always stop our downward descent. Now, this final image that he uses here of 
of being under the waters. Oh, oh, one more thing. Verse 4. Verse 4. It says, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. If you look at the different versions, there are a couple different ways this is translated. One is as a statement, like it is here. So he's saying, even at this early stage, he's saying, I I know I'm going to look upon your temple again. But other translations translate it as a question. A question that would go something like this. I am driven away from your sight. Shall I again look upon your holy temple? Which seems to me it fits better because at this point he's not talking about rescue or hope. He's saying, I was a dead man. I was, I was closed in forever. And, and the worst part of that is he would never again look upon God's holy temple. And then in verse uh, a six, at the root of the mountains, he went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. There's a, a curious expression that, that Jesus used when he was talking about the church. Uh, and he said, he was talking about the church, he was talking to Peter, and Peter, one of his followers, had just made an amazing statement about who Jesus was. You see, Jesus' followers were trying to figure out who he was, and, and Peter had just blurted out what Jesus had never explicitly told them. He said, you're the Christ. You're the chosen one of God. You're the, you're the anointed one, and, and you, are, you are the holy one of God. You're the son of God. He blurted this out, and... and and Jesus said, yes, that's right. And, and upon you, Peter, confessing this truth, this confession, I'm going to build my church. And then he said something curious. And he said, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So he said, I will build my church. I will build a body of believers around this, this confession that you have just made. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, now think about that image. What are these gates of hell? Is the church attacking and tearing down the gates of hell and, 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 and entering in to its premises? Well, it may well be that what Jonah says here is the background. We saw last week how Jesus had said to those who were challenging him, hey, show us a sign. Do a miracle for us. He said, I'll just give you one sign, and that sign is the sign of Jonah. The three days and the three nights. So it may be that this also was something that Jesus uh, took out of Jonah to explain what the church's mission is. And if if we, if we, if this is the background, what are the bars? What are the gates that are uh, in death and in hell and in Sheol? Those are the gates that don't let anybody back out. It says, it says here, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. So this is the clanging of the door behind the condemned, behind those who are destined to destruction. And so when Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, what is he saying about the mission of the church that he's going to establish? It's to enter into the jaws of destruction and death and and hell and to rescue people therefrom to rescue people from destruction and all those bars and all those efforts and all those gates that are trying to keep people under destruction and under death and under condemnation, they will not prevail against the church. As the church preaches this message that Peter discovered, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior, that that the gates of destruction and death cannot prevail against it. In other words... To get concrete, what are we doing here? 
What's our mission? People ask me, why are you starting a new church? And I say, we're starting a new church to reach more people. To reach new people with this message that they don't have to destroy themselves and don't have to be destroyed because a Savior has come and He came to rescue us from all that which is against us. All that which threatens our lives here and forever after. That's why we're starting a new church. So remember that. Why does Florida Coast Church exist? Why does any church exist? So that we might be involved in this great cosmic rescue operation that God is, is doing in this world. And guess what? These gates, these bars that Jonah thought were going to hold him in forever, they will give way before us as we proclaim this message. Now, back to, back to the text. Back to chapter or verse 6. Now we get this third aspect. We saw the introduction, we saw the rehearsal of the, the past problems, and then we have the, the, the declaration of what God did. He, and he does this very, very briefly. He, 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 he sets it up in several verses, talking about how desperate his situation was. And then at the end of verse 6, he says, Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Interesting, he brought him where? Up. And here once again we see the direction of, of uh, Jonah. Going down is bad, going up is good. Jonah slid farther down than he wanted to go. And what did God do? He brought him up. And Jonah says, he calls him the Lord my God. Now verse 7 is the fourth part, and this is something of a flashback. It's, it's relating, it's summarizing all that happened. When my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Now if you look back at verse 4, this seems to, to encourage us to see verse 4 as, as, a, as a, a question. Shall I again look upon your holy temple? And he was expecting the answer to be no, because he was cut off from the presence of God's eyes. But here he says, When my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord, and my prayer came to you where? In your holy temple. Amazing. He thought that he had been cut off from God's holy temple forever. He was a rebel. He was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And what happened? His prayer, even his prayer, even the rebellious prophet's prayer, it came before God where? It reached him in his holy temple. And then we have the last section which is the vow to the Lord. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And here he first dismisses the foolishness of idolatry. He's saying they're looking for love in all the wrong places. They're looking for love in, 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 in idols, in, in idols that can't give them love, that can't give them steadfast, faithful love. They're, they're looking for, for idols that, that can't do this. It's, it's foolishness. And we might think ourselves more sophisticated, not bowing down to to stone and to wood and to metal, but the same is true of our idols. The same is true of the things that that, that allure us and, and promise us life and love and happiness and then leave us with a bag of gravel, never satisfying, never fulfilling their promises. Our our modern idols, the things after which we run as humans can never give us the steadfast love that our hearts long for. Verse 9, he says, With the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed, I will pay. Now, 
this is interesting because do you remember what the sailors did probably when they got back to land? If you look at verse 16 of chapter 1, the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Who got to worship the Lord first? The Israelite prophet or the pagan sailors? The pagan sailors beat him to it. They, they went as soon as they could, it looks like, and worshiped the Lord and offered a sacrifice. And then Jonah, who should have been first in line to be worshiping the Lord, and by the way, that's how worship was done in the Old Testament, with, with sacrifices being offered to the Lord. That is how Jonah responded when he received God's mercy. And this, these two scenes, these two scenes really, really summarize the message of Jonah. That, and we'll see this more in the next chapters, but these are a glimpse. We have the, the, the sailors from the nations are worshiping the Lord because they received His mercy. And then the Israelite, the Jew, is sacrificing to the Lord because he too had received God's mercy. And this summer up, summarizes the message and it's giving us a little glimpse of coming attractions. That God has mercy on the nations and God has mercy on His own people as well. In Christianity, we do not continue to offer ritual sacrifices. Although we believe that a sacrifice was necessary to take away our sins, but we who are Christians believe that that sacrifice has already been offered. That's why you won't find in the Christian church, you won't find sacrifices being offered because we say, no, actually God provided the perfect sacrifice, which was Himself. That one whom Peter declared to be the chosen one. He was chosen, but he was chosen to be the sacrifice for our sins once for all. And then Jonah comes to the crescendo here at the end of verse 9 with this momentous discovery on his part. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. And this means that salvation is in God's hands and he may dispense it to whomever he wants. It's His to give or to withhold. But it also means that God is the one who rescues us. We do not rescue ourselves. Salvation, if there is going to be any salvation, rescue, if there's going to be any rescue, buying back, if there's going to be any buying back from death and destruction and the ruin of our lives, if there is going to be any of that, it must come from the Lord. We are completely unable to do this ourselves. And this is... Clearly illustrated in Jonah. What did Jonah do to be rescued? Anything? Nothing whatsoever. The only thing he did was call out to the one who was able to rescue him. And this is the only thing that we can do as well. If we recognize that there is something broken in ourselves, something that is not right, something that is out of accord with what God's best plan for our lives is, if we recognize that we have gone astray, there there is no measure that we can take to sort of clean ourselves up and make ourselves okay before God, that is, rescue ourselves. On the contrary, the only thing that we can do is what Jonah did, and that is call out to the Lord and say, Lord, salvation is Yours, rescue me. Jonah also discovered that God's salvation could reach even to the one who was actively fleeing from the Lord. Actively fleeing from the Lord. And God's hand rescued even him. I don't know if there's anyone here who in 
large measure or in small ways is, is actively fleeing from the Lord. I guess in some ways all of us flee from the Lord when we turn from Him to, to vain idols. But this is good news. You can't get away. God's mercy extends even to you, even to me. And this completes the good news, bad news of chapters 1 and 2. Chapter 1, if we want to summarize it, summarize it was this. The payment for sin, or the wages of sin, is death. That's what we discovered. And in chapter 2, we discover that the rest of that verse in Romans is summarize, summarizes chapter 2. But the gift of God, the free gift of God, the merciful, the gracious, the already paid for gift of God, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now the conclusion to this story is that the Lord directed the fish to vomit Jonah out on the land. Now this fish is Jonah's salvation. We might look at the fish as, wow, bummer, he's already thrown into the sea and now he gets eaten by a fish? This is going from bad to worse. But no, actually the fish is God's appointed means of salvation and now that salvation from death is completed and he is spit out back on the land. That is completing what God had started by appointing that fish. And Jonah understood very clearly that salvation is from the Lord, didn't he? No doubt about that. And he experienced it firsthand. So, surely, surely now Jonah would be willing to do whatever God called him to do, right? Surely Jonah, having experienced God's great mercy, would be willing immediately to do whatever God would call upon him to do. And surely, now that Jonah has experienced the rebellious prophet of Israel, now that he has experienced God's compassion and mercy, surely he will be willing to show that to anybody who might need it. Right? Surely, any of us who have been rescued from destruction would be willing to do whatever God asks us to do, right? Surely, surely those of us who have received God's mercy and compassion and grace would be immediately willing to extend that same mercy and compassion and grace to, to anyone who needs it, right? Well, I guess we'll see next week. Let's pray. Our God, we declare with Jonah that there's something wrong with us. We, by and large, know what is good and right and true. And we find, even as we sang earlier in the service, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And we find ourselves, in big ways or in small, running away rather than running toward You. I pray for us, O God, that You would show us the vanity of our idols, that they can't give us that life for which we long. And I pray, O God, that You would enable us to recognize what Jonah recognized, that salvation is Yours. And we, with much greater clarity, see that salvation is Yours because You sent the Savior. And calling upon Him, we may have salvation in Him.
And so we pray that as You show compassion to us, that You would prepare us for what's next. As You show mercy to us, that You would prepare us to show mercy to others. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.